0: Any artist, whatever they're shooting, you know, is their own critic, has to be able to critique their work, has to be able to understand where and how to develop. Welcome to the She Clicks Women in Photography podcast.
1: I'm Angela Nicholson and I'm the founder of She Clicks, which is a community for female photographers. In these podcasts, I talk to women in the photographic industry to hear about their experiences, what drives them and how they got to where they are now. In this episode, I speak with Tanya Frymouth, who developed a passion for photography with a simple camera in childhood. She later studied art at university, but transitioned to cinematography and then began creating music videos before becoming a successful director of photography and a Canon ambassador. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining me today on the SheClicks Women in Photography podcast. It's great to see you.
0: And you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Thank you.
1: So you first got started in photography at a really young age. How did that come around?
0: I think my grandparents had, do you remember those little Instamatic, they were kind of like oblong things? Oh yeah, Um, with a (laughs) a really old-fashioned little Perspex flashbulb that you like jammed on top and I guess I I was always sort of encouraged to occupy myself and I think I must have started occupying myself with you know taking snaps with that and my grandparents as grandparents you know their benevolence always must have processed them all and it just kind of encouraged me onwards (laughs) yeah and then that I moved from that happy snappy as I call them now to I guess what you'd compare to a rangefinder I don't remember the brand but suddenly I was going from little cassettes to 35 mil and I have to say when I opened that Christmas present um I was yeah probably a bit... (laughs) Confused, discombobulated, because I was like, "Wait, what is this?" And um, if I'm honest, I felt like the the challenge of moving up to 35mm kind of stolen, <laughs> yeah, stolen my sort of joy of doing it. But I did eventually figure out how to load the film, how to expose it, and of course, you know, that's all judgment by eye because there's nothing about those cameras that um, is automatic.
1: Yeah. So what age were you when you opened the 35mm camera? I think probably
0: about 10. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was one of those Christmas presents where you know you've been given something amazing and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with yeah. this. <laughs> yes, you're not going to be playing with it that afternoon. No. And you know that. And you know that now you've got this massive learning curve to go on, which, you know, it was a bit daunting. I didn't really have anybody. I mean, my dad's a photographer or he is now a professional photographer. Uh Uh, At the time, it was a hobby for him. And I knew I just wasn't going to have anybody there to help me do it. I knew I was going to be chucked in the deep end, which is his. He does have a portion for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for the first few times you do it, it's quite a stressful fiddly thing pulling that tab of film across and pushing it into the onto the sprockets and well winding it on manually in many cases
0: yeah and then you know wait you've got to kind of learn about aperture and and you know what the heck is that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then on top of that it's you know you've got to judge distance so it's like a lot of things all at once yeah yeah (laughs) did you learn all that by yourself or did you go to any
1: classes or anything
0: no, no classes. I, I just learnt it by myself. I guess making mistakes. I don't have any recollection of any of the pictures that I took um, in the early days, but it was really a process of elimination, if you like, um, later on. I think I probably started taking photographs with it when I was about um, 16 or so.
1: Did you have any female role models or any photographers that you looked up to whose work you wanted to emulate?
0: No. I mean, I think it's difficult to appreciate the difference between life now and life then. Mm. I think if I if there'd been the internet, yes would be the answer because, you know, latterly, you know, I like Eve Arnold's work and Evelyn Hoffer, her work is, is lovely and um, there's a documentary photographer called Tish, Tish Murter. I think there's a documentary out about her now. Yeah. And I guess my biggest influences were photojournalists, actually, because, you know, we always had the Sunday newspapers. And at that time, I think he was called Harold Evans, the editor of The Times. You know, he really supported photojournalism. So I was seeing work by those artists and maybe unwittingly seeing work by Jane Bowen, for instance. And there's another lady, um, Lee Miller. Maybe I was seeing their work, but not knowing... It was them because photojournalism is. It was the biggest influence on my choices of you know photography, the, the kind of photography that I was going to do. That's reached forwards to my cinematography actually.
1: And do you do any photography for yourself now?
0: Yes. Yeah, so now, although you're working on projects, is kind of is such a slow journey. Um, you've got to think of the project. You've got to work the project through. You've got to you know and and then allocate the time. Which when you're balancing, you know, earning a living, because photography is not something I primarily earn a living by. And I've sort of ring fenced it with purpose because I really wanted to be able to do something creative that was simply for me. And I always find once money gets involved, you know, you know, nine times out of 10, you've got a brief. Of course you have a brief and requirements. So it's sort of. Yeah, so I sort of ring fence it and do my own um, personal projects with it which hopefully then I exhibit and then hopefully somebody will buy them.
1: (laughs) So what sort of thing is typically one of your projects? Are they very varied?
0: No, I mean, I still, so I did used to do a lot of street photography um, and those would sort of take, the. I guess I'd be the sort of, you know, the travelling photographer with mates or, um, you know, on adventures, backpacking adventures. And that sort of carried forward. I mean, sometimes I'd just be allocated the role, (laughs) which was great. But I recognised that unless you had, I sort of felt something was missing, I suppose, and I was very fortunate to work with a a photographer called Jess Dixon, who actually works in the wedding photography market, who was going through a bit of a changeover for himself with his photography. And he made me aware of that, you know, there's my work would have more substance or authenticity or integrity to, to an audience if I could focus on a subject. So... My inspiration generally comes from um, art because before I did what went down a sort of camera and lens route, I know I was really kind of like, oh, I'd like to be an artist, probably like a lot of people. Um, But I sort of lost my confidence in my abilities. And so, you know, that's where the photography came in. But it now remains my greatest source of, um, I guess, inspiration. And then the other thing I've got, is it a weird obsession about is, well, and, and the elements that are out of that are, Time, I've sort of become aware it's I'm trying to some time, somehow freeze time, hold a moment, savour a moment. And then the sort of aspect of there just being one thing. You don't have to have hundreds of something for it to be of value. You can just have one thing, which, as I say it now, sounds like stating the bleeding obvious, but volume is a big thing in our society. You know, more, 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 isn't it? Yeah. So I guess those are the elements that I've looked at.
1: And you said, you know, hopefully exhibit and sell your prints. Is that always the end goal for you, you know, putting a certain number of images together that are printed and exhibited?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've only I've only managed it once. Because <laughs> uh, it's a whole other skill set, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. And I think people
1: completely underestimate how much work is involved. You know, it's one thing having the images, but actually putting a cohesive exhibition together, printing them, finding somewhere to show them, getting them on the wall, whole different thing.
0: Yeah, massive journey. I mean, one of the big mistakes I made uh, with the project that I was working on most recently was not how, well, in a sense, how they were printed. I wanted them to be big, so they're sort of 20 by 16. I managed to find a printer that could embrace what I was trying to achieve, which in itself was quite difficult. Most people just did not understand. So I did need to make some compromises. Um, but also I didn't understand that I'd need to back them. So they're on quite thick paper, but actually for them to hold their own. So, yeah, I feel like a bit of an numpty in that respect. But <laughs> unless you make the mistake, you know, unless you're going to college um, where you can learn these things, um, if you're flying by the seat of your pants, you're kind of going to learn in the field, I suppose.
1: Yeah, as every day is a school day. But also, you just don't know what you don't know until you come up against it. And if you start a project, that's how you'll discover the things you need to learn, isn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I mean, the guy took us all out the friends. He was like, well, you know, next time. And some people can be really gruff, but they mean it with kindness. You know, well, <laughs> you know next time, just, just come here first, will you? <laughs> so, I suppose, you know, he must have liked them and just felt impatient.
1: <laughs> yeah, I could also see that you were going to do it again
0: yeah which is nice actually and I, I will go back there because i think one needs relationships you don't i think we 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 can be so self-serving nowadays with the internet and our phones and you know it's almost like well you don't need anybody else which obviously is is not true we do need each other but in work we need each other because that a sharing of ideas you know you just don't know where it's going to learn and then you know for him i will go back to his framers and speak to him about the project before I shoot it. Well, I'm in the process of shooting it, so before I get round to printing it, I will go to him, speak to him first, and get his advice about how how I should print.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. Connections are so important. I think it's it's a key thing in every aspect of life, I think. So you're clearly a very passionate photographer, you know, with a clear vision of what you want to achieve, but... Oh, thanks. What So what was it that drew you to cinematography rather than stills photography, as a career, that is?
0: Um, I spent some time working at a photographer store on Great Marlborough Street um, called Keith Johnson Photographic, which gave me an insight to the selling of, you know, film and um, papers and all that. And that led on to a summer sort of placement at a printer's that used to be on Wardle Street. They used to be the home of photography, but not so much anymore. And I think I, I just thought to myself, gosh, am I going to earn an am I going to manage to earn a living? I mean, perhaps I was just intimidated by the whole process and not really knowing how I'd channel. I mean, with hindsight, always being 2020, I really should have taken the place I had at London College of Printing <laughs> and um, as it was back then. And that probably would have taken me down the path of photojournalism. But um, I I guess I decided, well, I don't think I am going to be able to earn a sort of a living doing this. Um, maybe this isn't for me. And at the time, during that printing session, I was printing prints of movie stars for a shop that used to be on Great Titchfield Street selling movie memorabilia. And um, it the, the sort of joined two dots because although I love photography, I used to be an avid movie watcher. And so I was like, huh. And somewhere within there, um, the suggestion came from a a kindly tutor at a sixth form college that I was attending that maybe I should go do film studies as a starting point to figure out what I would do with myself. And I guess that it was a sort of being in college, I could, you know, I believe, you know, I'm always a person that wants to make use of myself and to do things and help, be helpful. And what little knowledge I had of photography obviously went straight into the camera side of things. Um, They had a small studio there. So I was quite, really used to enjoy like using the studio cameras. And then, of course, the projects were shot on film. So, you know, I had an understanding by that point of, you know, what it is to underexpose and overexpose. And so, yeah, it kind of like was two and two makes four in a way.
1: So, how do you progress then from college to actual employment, you know, actually making some money from the industry?
0: Yeah, good question. Well, initially, I have to say, it was. I did leave. I was fortunate that um, some fellow students had uh, missed up a project. <laughs> and the people who had invested in the project, they, they still wanted their project. And uh, I saw the opportunity to uh, shoot that project and we were very fortunate to win the competition that the project was um, put into. And that gave us film stock money to process and I think we already had access to people with equipment so we spent I say we myself and the team of other people I sort of kind of led us into it and um, after that uh, we I moved on sort of like well let's shoot some music videos which sounds like so easy it slips off the tongue <laughs> It wouldn't go say first what was a disaster but it certainly it was a steep learning curve um, for lots of reasons, not least the volume of material that are really needed to make a, a, a cracking music video. Um, so that was that was like the first two years after leaving college and just sort of investing time, enthusiasm. That the, the, the thing was always like, well, if we get paid to do it, put as much of the money as we got into the project, you know, pay ourselves a little bit, but basically investing in the outcome. And that paid off. And that did pay off. We did get signed um, by a small production company in London. But we were in Manchester, and they were in London. And that was <laughs> that was a minor hurdle. Um, I, I don't expect it would be the same today. But back then, the distance of not being on the doorstep to pitch for projects and, and get your face around town.
1: What sort of era are we talking about?
0: <laughs> uh, later. Late eighties, nineties. So the whole indie music scene in Manchester, sort of a, you know the hacienda was just hitting its heyday. Bands like the, I think the the farm were around. Uh, we worked for the Milk Turtles. I'm still really quite proud of of what we achieved, to be fair. And it was a sad moment to realise that it, not its tart course,
1: but I mean vi- video music videos were really taking off in those days. Just a whole transitional. Thing, from just watching people on top of the pops miming or, you know, some slightly dodgy camera work going on. But then these really slick videos came along.
0: <laughs> yeah. And there were some absolutely awesome, like inspiring. I mean, there was the, U- there was, I mean, YouTube's videos were just phenomenal. Yeah. And um, I mean, I know these are all bands from back in the day, but I remember seeing a few from In Excess. As one well from Simply Red, we were like, I just, you know, played back and forth, you know, we used to record the music show <laughs> Saturday mornings and on VHS and just play them back and forth till we, to understand what they were doing and try and figure out the techniques. And of course, some of it, a lot of it was in camera in those days, but then eventually the, the post-production technology was catching up big time and a lot of it was done in, in post. So. I had a madcap idea because you had to go into the record companies, the marketing department, and pitch for the band. Even though the band, you you knew the band wanted to work with you and I knew I wanted to work with them, you still have to go through the process and and pitch to a marketing company who really want their mate (laughs) to shoot the video or their boyfriend or their mother or whatever. And and I remember sitting in this pitching session and thinking, oh my God, we're losing it. We are bloody losing it. And I went, well, how about this for an idea? We put some tattoos on and we bring the tattoos to life. And I remember my little partner in crime going, what are you talking about? I was like, and of course they bit because they didn't know what I was talking about either. <laughs> I reckon they probably thought we'd fail, but very, very fortunately, we had a great editor who knew a chap who worked for a post-production facility. I remember he was called Finley, but I can't remember his last name. Anyway, him his partner worked with a, piece of technology i think it was called henry or harry where you could basically rotoscope something that was drawn like into real life morphing i think it was called so it took us on a it took us on a good journey a good learning curve journey so yeah i mean it slip of a tongue (laughs) but uh yeah with a great outcome (laughs) well it sounds exciting yeah it was yeah terrifying absolutely terrifying but quite exciting (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: fantastic. I think you've progressed from music videos to more film work.
0: Yeah, so the music video journey came to its own end. And then I was like, whoa, what should I do now? And one thing that had troubled me about the music videos was I was really getting more into the production side. I was, I had become the, uh, although my creativity still went into them, I'd become the sort of chief cook and bottle washer of the production department. And so I was sort of getting very separated from being on set. So actually the ending of that journey gave me the opportunity to sort of not reinvent myself, but to take a different approach. And I decided, well, I'll I'll aim for the camera department because that's where I think I wanted to be in the first place. And so eventually, um, after a lot of door knocking, I I got breaks to be in-house loader for a couple of production companies who made commercials in Manchester and that sort of developed kind of recently It'd be good um, medium to long-term working relationship with a couple of DPs and then you know my goal was really always to be working in narrative fiction and so eventually I started uh, assisting for Granada on their television dramas which back then were shot on film.
1: Exciting stuff as well. When you were talking there, a whole load of questions popped into my head. So I was thinking, you know, you were talking about the sort of direction that you got moved in when you were in working on music videos, and I just wondered: were you the only woman? Were there any other women working in that area or in your team?
0: No. Well, there was initially, but she went off and started work. She wanted she wanted to be in TV, and she took herself off and started working. Do you remember the hitman? <laughs> oh, yes. She got her break in TV um doing that sort of work so she she went off which which left me and the person who was my partner at the time yes, yes. as well as in work you know and he wasn't going to do the phoning around and and the booking and the investigation and the research right so that that sort of fell to me but I mean you know at the end of the day as much as I didn't want to be behind a desk you know it did mean I found out about stuff I learned about stuff
1: Every organisation needs somebody who can do, or you know, one person who can do a bit of everything. So you get a, you get a full coverage, don't you? But sometimes you do you do end up taking on those mantles that you'd really rather not, just because somebody else absolutely won't.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and like I mean, you know, be on the sheet on the sheet days, for instance, rather than you know being able to just be by the monitor uh, or by the camera, as it was more then, and actually really watching what was going on and and paying attention to what we were filming, which were my ideas also. You know, I'd be getting people going, When are we gonna have lunch? Where am I gonna put the car? Um, when are you gonna pay my overtime? You know we're gonna go to go overtime, all that sort of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All that nitty gritty sort of stuff that that no no show runs without, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you said that you started work as a loader. I think it's probably a lot of people who don't know what that is.
0: Ah, oh, so clapper loader, so basically loading film. Okay. One of the weird things about the film industry, I think, is that, you know, the weight is like, well, I suppose it's like a house. The weight is on the foundations. And um, the clapper loader is the bottom of that, like, pyramid, if you like. And it's your responsibility to load the film stock, which, you know, requires quite a lot of knowledge, to be honest, and management skills. And then at the end of the day, download the film stock. As in expose, put it into a can, send it to the labs and not mess it (laughs) up. Yes,
1: not take the (laughs) lid off to just make sure it's in there and things like that.
0: (laughs) So how did you work your way up from there? Gosh, well, early jobs, it would just be me as the loader. And then as you get more experience, you know, you start working with teams of people. (laughs) And with that just comes more responsibility. And because the more capable you are as a team, the more responsibilities you can take on and eventually a lot of the jobs that I did were two camera jobs so there was an expectation that at the drop of a hat the second camera would come out and at those moments I'd be lo- loading for quite often loading for two cameras unless we had a trainee that could bump up or and focus pulling for one and so that way you start honing your skills to the next step of the ladder which is focus pulling and eventually you go I don't want to do this loading thing anymore I'm just going to do focusing and
1: what's the next step from focus puller?
0: The next step from Focus Puller is camera operating. Well, uh, not not necessarily, but could be. I mean, if you want to stay in your in your grade, stay there. You know, there's nothing to say that you have to move on. If it's serving you, then, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Um, I, however, didn't really have any desires to stay in, in the clapper loading role. And um, I did do it for a good many years. Um, then moved on to Focus Puller. Now, the next step is a huge, can be a huge leap. Generally, they'd say move on to camera operator. And at that point, you might go, well, that's the pinnacle of where I want to go. And then and after camera operator, you could move on to cinematographer or director of photography. I made the giant step for myself because, I mean, some people are fortunate and get bumped up just by working the team and a gap um, becomes available. And you can just move on. And others of us just have to make a decision. We're just going to do it. And I just decided one day I just had enough. And I didn't, I was like, God, do I want to know focus pull for another 10 years before I start doing what I want to do or figuring out if, but working as a cinematographer is what I want to do or am I just going to take the leap? And coincidentally, a colleague of mine, he'd been a loader, had stepped up and he'd done a bit of focus I and mean, he just stepped straight up to being a DP and I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Here we go.
1: You can wait a lifetime to be ready for something,
0: can't you? Or you can just sometimes go for it. Yeah. And I'm a slow mover. So, you know, I have taken a long time to make that decision. So really, you know, it was like, well, get on with it. You know, it's going to take you a while anyway. So you might as well start now. So I did. So what is the life of a cinematographer? What is the role? Uh, That's a big one. So there's lots of interpretations, I think, for for where that title comes in. I think typically I'd say a cinematographer is somebody who's involved in visual storytelling. So that could be documentaries and that could be narrative fiction. And of course, cine. You know, typically it would have been cine, but we're in a whole entirely digital world. But I think, you know, the, the projects, the output of the projects, so short films, you're really looking for something that's going to be broadcast or for theatrical release. I would say that would be the typical expectation of somebody who's calling themselves either a director of photography or a cinematographer. And it is sort of more defined by the output. But, of course, it doesn't stop. Anyway, you know, you choose your title. If you've woken if up today thinking you're going to be a cinematographer, well, well, you are. <laughs> yeah nobody else makes that decision for you um does that kind of answer the question I think I'm like, I've might got enough track
1: yeah <laughs> well I think there's a lot of people who don't really know what a cinematographer or a director of photography does on a day-to-day basis in a set I mean it, it seems to be like the gel between the, the director and the rest of the crew working that helps deliver a creative vision but I've never done that job so I don't know you might be thinking no no
0: no, no, that's a pretty good way of putting it. I like that. I think we are the gel. I think so. If you're a cinematographer, you're ta- you're you. I would say you're more likely to be operating the camera and integrally involved in the lighting and have a, a close working relationship with the director. A lot of our work goes on. and This is well, it's documentaries as well. But a lot of work goes on in prep. So if you're talking, you know, you've got to get to know the story got to get to know the director's wishes and then it's down to that person to figure out how to best interpret that those wishes and bring them to life you know what are the visual references look at theirs what are yours join it together so you can decide on like the color and the look in my personal view I think the cinematographer is the first audience of a movie before you know before it gets out there and um, we're not As emotively involved in the story at that point. We'll be right back after this short break.
1: Please excuse this interruption. This podcast is supported by Canon, a leading technology company founded in Japan in 1937. Canon is dedicated to helping people reimagine and push the boundaries of what is possible through imaging. Canon believes in living and working together for the common good to develop a better society and a more inclusive and equitable world. Let's get back to the episode.
0: As the director would, so we're not caught up in like, what's the character's motivation for this, that and the other. So we're kind of looking at it. And if things don't add up, then there's a gap. Right. I always feel it's up to us. You have to flag that gap. Because even if there's no dialogue to fill that gap or dialogue to fill that gap is unnecessary, that means we have to find the visuals to fill that gap. And that will generally be to support a character's presence and to sort of justify that character's presence within the narrative or to bring forward like the the subtext of the movie. Okay.
1: Are you personally generally these days holding a camera or are you talking to someone holding a camera? Or operating a camera, I should say. <laughs> um
0: I've done I've done both. I must admit I prefer to be holding forward slash operating the camera. And this is where like if, if you're not, uh, you're more a director of photography and that means you're head of a I mean, even as a cinematographer, you are head of the department. But what my experiences of being the director of photography are there is a heck of a lot of, you know, people management. It's sometimes one job I did, two full crews. But the operator is taking the brunt of the planning for the shots, which you're, which one's party too, because you got to try and, you know, hopefully, you know, got a good enough working relationship whereby, you know, the shot that's being designed isn't going to show up all your lights that you inevitably need to put up, and so that frees the director direct of photography will then be working with the gaffer more specifically to sort of like you know, keep that team ahead of what the camera department is about to do. So everybody's sort of ready to go because all these things work in parallel. So there's a lot of time management.
1: You've mentioned, you know, working as a team and we've we've touched on forming connections. And it sounds like, you know, you, you mentioned also developing a working relationship with people. There's a lot of collaboration in what you do. So do you find that you work with the same teams or the same people quite regularly because you understand each other's processes and you get on well and you work creatively together?
0: Yeah, definitely. There's a sort of trust as well, I think, that that comes out of that. You know, that you can trust somebody to be cracking on with something. You don't have to be um intentionally or unintentionally micromanaged. And, you know, you're just gonna turn around and like boom, it's gonna it's gonna be done. And also knowing that they understand, you know, one's idiosyncrasies is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> or they know how you wanna you know, you're gonna want the monitor over there, you're gonna want this on the monitor or that, you know, it's just yeah. It just Eases is the day, I guess. It's like, you know, same as, you know, your, your socks are in the bottom drawer and your T-shirts are in the drawer below that or above that, you know. <laughs> You're not continually saying two sugars or whatever. Exactly. And, you know, human beings are creatures of habit, aren't we? Yeah. Just sort of
1: shifting tack slightly, there's been lots of interesting, exciting developments in cameras over the last few years. Is there anything that is sort of coming along or has recently arrived that's been particularly exciting for you particularly helpful maybe help with your job
0: um a dp called or a cinematographer i think it's how he prefers to refer to itself called ed blackman has been working for some years on a an exposure tool similar to something that we call false color um but they're going to be called the el zone um which more accurately reflects because a lot on digital cameras we rely either on histograms or waveforms And some people tend to use false colour, which is a visual representation of that. But a bit like ordinary 18, you know, seven-stop grayscale was superseded, if you like, by Ansel Adams' zone system, right? If you wanted to get your white's white and your black's black, you tend to use the zone system. Well, so Ed Lachman's scale, which is now built into some monitors, um, allows us access to, to, to that in, in terms of exposure so we're not limited to the 18% grey so much. But The thing I'm loving the most is I recently got an R5C because I was waiting for that moment when the technology and cameras was going to balance out a bit and it was worth making the investment and you know I still shoot video but I still take photographs I wanted a good hybrid and the R5C landed so I was like yes but the thing that's really excited me about that is that I can now put my FD lenses, which I've been hanging on to for donkey's years, and I don't know whether to sell them or get them rehoused. And I've tried various adapters that never worked successfully enough for me to be convinced to, buy it, for, to go from FD to EF bodies. But now, simple little adapter ring onto my R5C and boom, I can use all my FD glass. Oh, wow. So it's nothing to do with all the autofocus <laughs> um, advances that have been made. Your manual focus. Uh, well, yeah, the manual focus, buddy. I mean, yeah, the autofocus stuff is 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 great, I and mean, and it's, it's it's amazing technology. And the R5C, I mean, phenomenal things around that. Is it's got false color built into it, so from the video side, and you know, it does have very intuitive autofocus. But I guess when I'm taking photographs now, you know, they are much more considered. I am much more in control and purposeful about what I'm taking a photograph of. So I'm not out there. I guess they're sort of, I don't know, it sounds like a bit of a grandiose title, but they're more fine art photographs. So I'm much more, I'm slower in being more purposeful about what I'm doing with it. So the focus being done for me is less important. Fine. So... Does the false colour on the
1: R5C work in stills mode as well as video mode? I've not tried it. That, I don't know, actually. Okay. But I asked because I have used a, a phase one camera in the past that I could use false colour with in stills, and it kind of changed my experience, well, how I felt about the photographs. I felt a bit like a data gatherer rather than a photographer, um, which so that was it was slightly different. I can see, you know, I can see absolutely see the benefits for video. Obviously,
0: I think in a way we are data gatherers. Yeah. And I, oh, were we not when it was film? I don't know. I didn't, didn't ever feel like that on film, but sometimes with video, it definitely does. You know, with digital, yeah, it really definitely does feel like that. And in terms of stills, one of the big issues I faced with the project I did with flowers was that. They had to be against complete darkness. They had to be in darkness. They just obviously they weren't because they're were illuminated, but he could he just it was really important you didn't see the light. And so at that point you're working I was working at very low levels of light and with red flowers that became problematic. It took a lot of investigations to figure out how to stop the red bleeding into the other channels. Because when it did, you got this sort of phosphorescent effect to the picture, which I most definitely didn't want. I mean, (laughs) um, and by using the I mean, talking of data, which is where we're at, um, by using the histogram, I could see where the red channel was jumping over into the green. And that's what was causing the phosphorescence.
1: We often rely on just the, the overall histogram, don't we? But being able to break it down and see RGB is really, really useful particularly in that instance.
0: Yeah. And then nowadays, I think I'd be inclined to put in a a colour chart because, of course, if you're doing your own printing, it doesn't really, it's not a problem because you know what colour red you're seeing. But if somebody else is doing your printing, I now would be dropping in a colour chart just because I want it to be that red. Or, you know, the colours now have no numbers that are in all the editing software that we use, whether it's um, Photoshop or DaVinci, it's all in there. So it's trackable.
1: Well, I think it might be a good time to go to six from SheClick. So I've got 10 questions from SheClickers. I would really like you to answer six of them, please, by choosing numbers from one to 10. So can I have your first number, please? Uh, Let's go for 10. Number 10. Okay. Right. A few people asked this one. What has been the highlight of your career so far?
0: Well, I think very recently, um, the success of a, an indie film that I shot has just done phenomenally well at, uh, at festivals. And it's a highlight because it's so rewarding to see all the love and attention and going in that went into the film reflecting back in its success. So, you know, I'm super happy about that. And, um, yeah, it's 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 extremely rewarding also to do something that people enjoy.
1: Congratulations on that. So uh, you'll have to tell us the name of the film.
0: Thank you. Uh, Verdigree. It's um, doing its festival journey at the moment. I'm not sure where it goes next. It's just been in Cork Film Festival. Um, not quite. Yeah, I'm not sure where it goes next.
1: So is it likely to be in cinemas at some point or on TV or something so everyone can see it?
0: I've think it's probably likely to go um onto a streamer but i think the first year tends to be committed to festivals to sort of build up its presence and um for, for it to get known um by people who sort of buy and sell movies um and then after that it'll go on to, to, to a platform but i don't know which um, I mean, The Contestant, which is a documentary I shot, which, by the way, if you get the opportunity to see it, is a really great documentary um, directed by Claire Titley. And it just just is phenomenal. It's, um, I think Rolling Stone said it's the wa- movie of the year <laughs> for them. And that's been bought by Hulu. And it's a major, uh, That I mean, that's also, so I think this year it's, it's those two films are just phenomenal.
1: Okay, so The Contestant and Verdigris. Yeah. Okay. So could I have another number, please? Oh, let's go for three. Number three. Oh, what is the thing that a cinematographer does that would surprise someone who's not a cinematographer?
0: That question's from Liz. Probably all the the script breakdown work. Probably all of that. So we, we can read through the script, as I mentioned earlier. So we work with the director to build the visual narrative, but we're looking for subtext to bring to the visual narrative. Um, so it's script breakdown looking for beats and turning points yeah that's probably say that's that's the one thing that probably people don't expect cinematographers to be doing yeah kind of piecing it all together in your head in a way yeah it was more like find, finding meaning finding meaning and slow and using uh, and the rhythm within the film and then finding the shots that will support that rhythm so if you've got a dramatic moment, say, you know, somebody's going to break into a room, you probably want a close-up of the door handle. But, you know, the director might be more focused on the character's response, which makes sense because you want to see the character's response. But we'd have to be going, no, we need the door handle shot. So it's, it's those sort of things.
1: Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Sounds like that's quite a long process. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm about to do a short film and uh, we're just kind of going through all those things at the moment. And the director's, he's open to it, which is good, but even he's a little bit like, really? it?" I'm like, yeah, you're going to need it in the edit. So we've got to supply material to the editor so that they can move this way or that way. Kind of like having eyes in the back of your head. (laughs) Can I have your third number, please? What shall the third
1: number be? Seven. Seven. Okay. What's your work schedule like? Do you spend
0: a lot of time away from home, for instance? Candy, yeah, and the hours are, are long, so you're on set for at least you're on set for breakfast for seven thirty, so that probably means you're on set at seven um you might get away on rap, but rap is around about seven o'clock, six, seven o'clock, but the chances are you'll probably have a meeting afterwards, so yeah and you, you don't see much of the outside world Old. yeah <laughs> during that time, and how long does that go on for? Um, It really depends on the project So, well, Verdigree was shot in Dublin So I was in Dublin for, I think Best part of a month Um, And often we're we're working six-day weeks So you're either, like, away, gone Or rattling around the place being a nuisance (laughs) (laughs) Okay, can I have your fourth
1: number, please? Let's go for number one Number one, okay What camera or lens have you owned But have let go and you'd like to get back? I'm a hoarder I don't let go of anything. <laughs> Hence, you've got your FD lenses. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, until I'm really convinced it just does not serve me anymore. I mean, I've still got my 7D. Right. It's not useless, but the chip technology has changed so much and I've done a lot of, you know, had a lot of clicks, as they say. But it's my, you know, for a photographer or or a cinematographer, like it's an inanimate object which I'm heavily invested in. This <laughs> is. I think that's the thing. So I find it incredibly difficult to get rid of. And there's always like, yeah, so I, I don't. And I, I have my great uncle's Nikon. I've just been handed somebody's um, in the family was giving away their Canon AE1, I think it is. Nice. You know, you just can't. <laughs> no,
1: no. What about the camera you were given when you were seven? Have you still got that?
0: Or the 35mm you were given? Now, that is a good question that's going to get me ferreting around in the loft. I'm fairly convinced that yes would be the answer to that. Probably do, you know. Great. I've still got a box brownie I bought for 15p when I was about 10.
1: (laughs) It wasn't new for 15p, I should point out. It was secondhand then. I'm not that
0: old. (laughs) 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 But then uh, the other thing is, is you see, just don't know the value of it. I mean, the FD lenses, to all intents and purposes, once we switched to digital, had no value. And then people started looking for lenses with an aesthetic because obviously as we went digital, everything got super, super crisp. Yes. And like no shallow depth of field. And, and then eventually people were like, well, you know what? How am I going to bring myself into this project if everything's so clean? Like, so this people started looking for ways to to be creative. And vintage lenses were that. So, although I thought of selling them, it, my heart wasn't in it. And then I thought of getting them rehoused, um, which is phenomenally expensive and quite a lengthy process, but, you know, potentially worthwhile. But now I can can use them on my R5. So, it's brilliant. It's a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, your penultimate number then, please. I think I've had one from the top and one from the bottom. And Let's go for number two then. Okay. Right. This is a fun one.
1: You have two days completely free of work. What are you going to shoot? So this is just for you, for fun. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, actually, what I would really like to be able to do is hop on a plane, go to a city that I've not yet worked in, in Morocco, and continue with that project and have two clear days um, to do that. And can I take a minder with me, please? (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's that's what I would just like to do.
1: Yeah. And are, are you photographing people or places or objects or landscapes?
0: I won't continue to guess. What are you shooting? <laughs> <laughs> it's situations, I suppose, circumstances. So, again, there can be a character in or a person in the shot, and nine times out of ten, there is. It's not street. Although I'm shooting on the street, it's not a street look. So, they can't be doing anything. I guess it's sort of more kind of neoclassical type approach. So, they're, they're still lives. So, they've got to embody, I guess, elements from the neoclassical style of painting, and that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment. That's the project I've got to finish. <laughs> oh, I look forward to seeing it. Thank
1: you. Okay, so your last number then, please. Uh, eight. As you were inspired at an early age, Carmen would like to know if you have any advice about how to inspire children to become interested in the world of photography. She's got a young son that she really wants to encourage into photography.
0: I think accessibility is really... Important, like accessibility to the tools, encouragement, but purposeful encouragement, if you see what I mean it's you know if something's good, then find what is good about it. yeah, don't be sort of too carte blanche about it because any artist, whatever they're shooting, you know, is their own critic, has to be able to critique their work, has to be able to understand where and how to develop. Books would always be a go-to, and trying to help that person to evolve a style. What's their interest? You know, some people are into still life, some people into rock bands, some people are into street, and then there's always animals. So I think you know finding the outlet for his photography that is authentic to him. Good advice, I think.
1: Yeah, I like I particularly like the bit about um, not being too sort of generic with your with your praise. I've come across quite a few people who obviously told as children they're great singers and you think you're really not, you know, (laughs) but you you need to be (laughs) positively encourage people in the right direction sometimes. And, you know, if they're not doing so well, then help them understand why.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot about photography that is technical, you know, using depth of field, for instance, or do you want to underexpose? Do you want to overexpose and why? And if you're going to overexpose, what aesthetic are you trying to achieve by that overexposure? would diffusing that shot enhance overexposing it and then looking at, you know, types of lighting. Do you want it to be hard? Do you want it to be soft? What's the feeling? I mean, Jane Bowen, this is where those photojournalists who did portraits are incredibly useful. I mean, Jane Bowen is is a good one to look at and just to explore how initially you respond to that picture will give you the pathway to understanding what that person did to that picture to elicit that emotional response from you. Yeah, good advice.
1: Well, Tanya, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's been wonderful hearing from you. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this episode of the She Clicks Women in Photography podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll find links to Tanya's website and social media channels in the show notes. I'll be back with another episode soon, so please subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform and tell all your friends and followers about it. You'll also find SheClicks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube if you search for SheClicksNet. So until next time, enjoy your photography.